0: time is a podcast about building businesses wealth and financial freedom we try to uncover the challenges our guests faced the mistakes they made and the steps they took to achieve their goals the overall objective is to provide you with a roadmap that leads to your own success sean tepper is your host are you ready it's payback time Investing is more than just numbers and math. Most investors make the mistake of only looking at the numbers and wonder why they are not picking strong investments. You need to look past the numbers and look at the business. Overall, you need to understand the four M's. This includes the margin of safety, the meaning, the moat, and the management. In this episode, our guest helps us gain a better understanding of each so you know what to look for before you invest. Please welcome Brent Keltner. Brent, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Well, I'll tell you about my company, and that's probably more interesting to your audience. Uh, We do go-to-market and revenue acceleration consulting. uh, And really, our secret sauce is helping teams move from product-driven selling it's all about me and my product and my successes to what we call authentic conversations, which is every conversation starting in prospecting to sales, the customer success, starting with your buyer, or your customers. Why? Why are they talking to you? How can you make them more successful? Um, and so that's the work we do. We, we do messaging strategies, playbooks and team based training, um, I got here in a very roundabout route. I was actually trained as a PhD social scientist and learned how to run authentic conversations doing qualitative research interviews <laughs> hmm. and then transitioned over to run and go to market teams at Kaplan and Edge Ventures, Collegiate Link and uh, Plus Delta Partners and had a number of very quick growth successes going into situations where they were focused on their products. And I said, hey, let's make it about your buyer and customer and boom, 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 four very different companies, but, you know, quick growth, acceleration. And, and so at that point, I was like, hey, I can do this for a lot of people.
0: And I started Analytics sure. as a as a consultancy. Thank you for the background. Now, are you primarily focused on like maybe new tech startups or new startups in general, or do you work with businesses that are trying to introduce a new product or a new revenue stream?
1: Yeah, I mean, both. It's one of the nice things, Sean, about the approach. We have several target markets, but what we've seen is that the methodology works as well with enterprise sales teams as some of your audience that might be thinking about an entrepreneurial venture or they have a business and they're trying to accelerate that business. So I was on with a a very big, a higher ed and corporate learning company today, and they're launching some new divisions, right? And this principle Mm -hmm. about you got to find and I know your method is beyond the metrics. It's like, what's the meaning and what's the moat, right? Mm -hmm. Is you got to find those buyer outcomes and customer outcomes that you're uniquely qualified to serve, or you can build a differentiated message And honestly, that's as important in an early growth stage company as it is in more of an enterprise situation where you're trying to grow faster.
0: Sure. I want to dive into this a little bit from the investing standpoint. And as you know, our audience are primarily retail investors investing in stocks. And as we teach at Ticker, you know, we're not investing in stocks. We're investing in businesses, And there's more than just math when you look at a business. You know, Ticker fortunately handles the math for us, but we also, as you just alluded there, you got to look at the meaning, moat, and management. So let's dive into the meaning a little bit, which from our perspective is the business model, where the business model is going, um, who your customers are. Can you help the audience understand how to uh, take a little better look at the meaning part of the business?
1: Yeah, 100%. I would say it all, whether B2C or B2B. It all comes down to two things, really, is how clear is the before and after case, right? Right. Customers here, you move them here, and can you actually quantify that in a meaningful way? You're going to save them time, you're going to make them more money, you're going to lead to a different kind of collaboration between a team or in a family unit if you're selling some kind of, you know, B2C mobile device to track your kids. So the best companies, the highest growth companies, what they can very clearly communicate to their buyers um, is we will move you from where your current state to a better future state. And this is what that could be worth to you. Would you be interested in learning? More, And I'll just share one story. It's on the B2B side, but I think of Greg Carter at TrueFit and TrueFit is a retail personalization platform. So they work with Macy's, Uggs, Dick Sports, a bunch of others to find the right style and fit recommendations. And it's an impressive product, 17 million brands or 17,000 brands, 200 million consumers. We started working with Greg and team, they'd show up and they'd throw up their transformational AI product. And awesome demos, everybody can relate to getting the wrong product or not being (laughs) confident to pull the trigger, and then it would die, right? There was no ongoing momentum. And as soon as they realized, oh, we got to tell a story about how putting that on your website does something meaningful for your business, it takes more of your web browsers and it gives them the confidence to buy. It means they buy the right thing the first time, so they don't return as much. It means you have more insight by combining data sets with what is their potential lifetime value, how to target and retarget mm-hmm. them. Boom. Now, as soon as they shifted it from not a transformational product, but what does that product do for my buyer? Their sales productivity just went through the roof and they, you know, the pandemic helped, but that sales messaging and execution, they had an 85% growth from our already like a $30 million base. I mean, it was dramatic dramatic growth for them. And we've seen that with companies at all phases. If you can tell a very clear story about how you make your buyer's life better and what that's
0: worth to them, you will grow faster. I love this. I wanna dive in a little further. So let's talk about the differences between B2C and B2B because B2B can be a little more complex. There's a little more um, handholding in the um, sales process whereas B2C should be very clear, very easy for that buyer to understand um, so maybe talk about the differences a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, you said it exactly right is in B2B, it's, you know, there can be an instantaneous decision. I, I'm the buyer. Did you motivate me to show how you can change my, my life? Um, in B2B, you often, you have to get a champion who then goes back and makes the case. Mm-hmm. You got to line up the internal stakeholders around their value prop. Right. So that creates a lot more complexity. I got to get better at helping them prioritize what is the value of doing something with me. I think in B2C, what you find in B2B, peer stories matter a ton, but in, in B2C, it's everything, right? Is there a buzz around it? Do I look at people like me that are kind of using this product? We did a work for a company called Dealerator that was a B2, B2C product. They basically sold dealer reviews, Uh, to car dealerships. But what they found is it was like this people like me phenomenon. I heard testimonials from other people I could identify. And so there was some AI to kind of serve up the right um, reviews to people on the other end. So I saw other people like me buying and having a great experience with that dealer. There's an emotional response that makes me more likely to buy. So I think in B2C, telling those peer stories, and we know the best form of uh, kind of marketing in B2C is that word of mouth. Yep, And actively promoting that word of mouth and building kind of a following around that word of mouth is everything.
0: Success stories matter a lot B2B, but lining up your buying group is as important. With B2C, I found... The best in class do a good job. You kind of alluded to that a little bit, which is you know the social score, you know what they're um, what people say about it, whether it's uh, Facebook, Google, or TrustPilot reviews. I know there's a bunch of others. Um, that's one. Two is community. I think community is big. If you got a community around it, that that can elevate your confidence in the product. Um, I'm big on this with B2C world. Is what's the barrier to entry? If it's mm-hmm. B2C and you don't have salespeople selling the product, it should be super easy to use it or get your hands on it with a pretty low friction um, return policy or um, exit strategy or exit process if you're in a SaaS. So what are your thoughts on all that?
1: Yeah, no, I I think the, so two thoughts on your second and third, the community, right, and creating Mm -hmm. the opportunity for your users to learn from each other about new features that, right? Or new ways of doing things with whatever your product is, is critical. But then, you know, thinking about the extensions, right? What else can we put in front of them? If you're Apple, it's like, all right, what other devices can I add to your phone to get that, Mm -hmm. make you stickier to it? So I think that two and three, but I would go back to your one. And I think of a company we did some work with called Iron Tree Service. I mean, there's a million folks that will come down and, uh, you know, prune your trees, or mm-hmm. cut down your trees. And they were the high-priced leader, but they differentiated around the iron tree experience, right? This kind of end-to-end, it was from beginning to end. And so a more affluent demographic, but people at home that didn't want the hassle. And when they would get a bad review the CEO would literally pick up the phone and call those people and try and remediate the bad reviews and so they fix it. <laughs> and, and he was successful.
0: Yes. he was like,
1: Hey, let me, let me hear more about what went wrong or what, how can we make it right for you? And then people go fix it. So that yes. pure perception was everything for them.
0: Yes. You know, a lot of people, underestimate the power of good customer service. I, mm. and, and you've seen this probably in your space. You can have a really good product and bad customer service. It will default to a bad product and a bad experience. But if you flip the equation, I found you could have an OK product or bad product, but really good customer service. You can still, from my perspective, you can still get some customers and even retain some customers because your service is that, that good. Um, I found this in the SaaS world. There's SaaS products that are, eh, they're maybe okay, but they've got really good customer service, which motivates you to be like, all right, I'll stay around. I'll see what, what this evolves into. So I'd love to hear your yeah, thoughts yeah, 100%, on customer service.
1: I mean, look, we, uh, we're asked for information all the time from the people we do business with. Mm-hmm. And the most, so our expectation is they know us and they know how to troubleshoot our problem right so when you experience and i think insurance companies are the worst often yeah. it's right it is or or when you run a car and you think of the experience like i've given you this information two dozen times <laughs> and you're still going to make the wait in line for 20 minutes it's so frustrating yes. right so when when people handle that well and they actually have a good knowledge base and they train their people right? To sort of Mm. listen and recap or go back and look at the record of your last interaction. I understand you were on, you know, just a call a month ago and had this problem or whatever it is, it changes everything because we're busy, right? And we all value our time a lot. So I agree with you. It's totally undervalued and often under-resourced, right? Is is part of the challenge.
0: Yeah. And and to dovetail into from the investing standpoint is, Those of us that invest in businesses or stocks, you know, look for those companies that have really an elevated experience with customer service. Um, Then, you know, we want to look at businesses that are scalable and continuously increasing revenue and profits. That's all great. But it's just another layer of quality when you really look at the service side. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think for your your investors, uh, when we evaluate companies or we're working with venture capitalists and helping them uh, with a the company, the, the thing that we always look at that separates you know good from great companies um, on the B2B side, but it's also true on the B2C side, is really how well do they know their different buyer types? We live in this world where we all expect hyper-personalized messaging and hyper-personalized experience because information is everywhere. And most companies start from the proposition like, oh, I have a product and I sell to a buyer. And the reality is on the B2C side, your demographics, right, your income and your marital status and your whether you have kids and your ethnic background all influence dramatically how you think about a product. And on the B2B side, you know where you sit in the organization and what you're held accountable for and what segment you live in, You know, if you're in HR at a manufacturing company, that's very different than HR at a biotech company or a professional services right. company in terms of the talent you recruit and how you create retention and recruitment strategies and how you think about women leaders and all mm-hmm. kinds of other issues. And so we always early on say, hey, how well do they tell that? What well, we talked about the before and after story? Yep. You know, why is the buyer going to benefit from working with you? And then do they have a sense about, you know, what are their two or three ideal buyer personas in an early growth mode? Hey, this gets me to a half million. This might get me to a million. To get to 5 million, I've got to tap into three of these different ideal pyre types. Here's the addressable market in that. So do they actually understand that the world today is deeply, you know, every market is kind of micro-segmented.
0: Right. Yeah, this this goes back to how well, and this is good for the entrepreneurs out there listening, is how well do you understand your customer? You know, you think about the businesses you invest in, like how well do they understand you or or their buyers if you happen to be a buyer. But then if you're thinking about building a business, understand those personas or those segments within your business and and how to serve them better. And it's it's not an overnight process. And let's talk about that a little bit on how you help companies improve that. Like from my perspective, it's a lot of surveys and a lot of Zoom calls and getting to know the customer as well as you possibly can and understand the pain points and peeling back the onion. And, and it takes a while. Like I said, it can take, it's not just a few months. It can be years in some cases.
1: Yeah, no question. I think all of those things you said, I mean, one of the things we always say is most companies don't know their customer stories very well. And there's one reason they never ask.
0: I mean, seriously, Seriously,
1: if you go to some of your best customers and just with a simple kind of, you've been one of our best customers for a year or two years or six months, you know, would love to hear what you really like in what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, if there's anything that we're not, you know, doing as well as we might, I mean, like, this is a a value added conversation. We, We always, six months in, we'll say, and if it made sense, would love to bring you into our thought partnership. Mm-hmm. We always love to hear when our customers hear from other customers, right? That's the most yeah. powerful form. So you're just simply saying, hey, I want to have a dialogue about why you're working with me. Yep. Um, and just understand, hey, where were you before? Why did you choose us? Yes. What was the result of that? So problem, solution, result. Yep. Right. Is you just do some of those customer storytelling and you will have a much better idea. Um, and then you, what you want to think about is these what we're talk, peer peer groups, mm-hmm. right? So in our own story, I mean, I built this as I said to you, this more authentic. We call authentic conversations, which are not about us and our product. It's about our buyer and our buyer why, and really landing on how to make them more successful. I built it as an academic, and I, I have a PhD, and I came from the academy. I had a bunch of gross successes as a revenue leader, and then I went to CEOs and VP sales, and I, I have this different way of doing stuff. And they're like, you're an academic. What do you know? This sounds touchy-feely, right? They just totally <laughs> dismissed it. This was like 10 years ago. And so I said, okay, we're winning in higher ed. I'm going to keep winning in higher ed. Yeah. And then I just looked for people in other segments, human capital, industrial automation, ad tech, that kind of got the outcome we were trying to drive for. It's not about your product. It's about the business outcome. And so we built out personas. So I think your Entrepreneurs or your investors, it's how well do people understand the outcome? And then yep. how well do they understand it for a couple of different buyer personas? Yeah.
0: That's yep. how you get build
1: really dramatic growth.
0: Yeah, that's really good to be sensitive to, you know, with the businesses we invest in. Of course, back to those who are building a business is how well do these businesses care about their customer? Are they asking those questions? Are they on social media engaging? And if somebody comes up with an idea, do you see do you see responses from people at the company about, oh, that's a great idea. Um, We're going to take that into consideration like you're hearing us. You know, you're taking this into consideration. That means a lot.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I had the good fortune, a guy named David Meerman Scott was my book coach for this book, this Revenue Acceleration Playbook we just published. And he has a book called Fanocracy, which is exactly on your point. It's like your your brand really takes off when your buyers, consumer or business, kind of co-own your brand. Yes. And they're innovating and suggesting and you're internalizing those learnings and letting those people that really are already bought in kind of help you map the path.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you can start that with five customers. Yes. You can start with five customers. Like, tell me what's the most valuable to you and how do we extend that?
0: You might have some fun with this question or comment, which is there are entrepreneurs and sometimes CEOs that their ideas are the best ideas and they're going to do it <laughs> their way. Right. And I found that the best way to build a business or launching a new product within a company is remove your ego from the equation put it on the customer as the as the product creator, if you will, and just execute what they want. And it's not too difficult of a formula, but there's a lot of people, they have to put their ego right in the middle of that equation. Yeah, you nailed
1: it. I mean, you, you nailed it, right? A CEO as a buying group of one. They might have <laughs> an idea about how they want to do things, but at the end of the day, your buyers and customers are going to tell you their language for their peers is a lot Mm -hmm. more powerful than our language for what we think they want. Right. Right. Yes. I love that check your ego at the door. We talk about authentic conversations, but increasingly talking about an authentic mindset, right? I mean, our minds are, and this is people a lot smarter than me have done the research on this, but our brains are wired to be egocentric and selfish, right? Our brains are wired to think about my point of view is right to start with a conclusion and collect evidence to support that conclusion. Our brains are not wired to say, hey, let me collect evidence <laughs> from mm-hmm. my market to get to the ideal position. So you have to think about actively checking your ego in the door. And am, am I actually learning about my customers and buyers? Yes. And am I letting that drive my sense of product market fit and then go to market fit, which
0: is about scaling around those initial customers? Right. Right. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's say you find product market fit and now you're in a state where, okay, we know what our customers want and they're starting to join. How do you put down the gas and really accelerate the business from there?
1: Yeah. And I, I don't know if you know uh, the sales acceleration formula, Mark Robert, who is HubSpot's uh, uh, CRO from zero to hundred million in sales. Uh, he's got a very specific point of view. I interviewed him for our book, but I heard him talk at a conference recently again what he says is, honestly, you should measure to, through to your customer lifetime value. So the, that's the metric that matters the most. Even if you're converting them at a high rate through your marketing and sales model, what you want is to repeat the customers that have the highest value. And what you want to see is an early indication of that, right, that there's adoption early on and how they use the product. So that, that's hard to do, but I think it points again at that idea of let's go to the buyer groups where we have the most significant outcomes yep. that they can articulate, that they can measure and double down on those. So I'll give you an example of a company called Mainstay, where we it's a conversational AI product that started in higher ed. They're now in the corporate market and the K-12 market. Uh, conversational AI that initially helped with student admissions. So getting students to submit an application, enroll, yield them through the summer because there's a lot of summer melt, they double dip, and then to keep them through the first year. And when I started working with them, they had 10 customers in six different segments, some corporate, some nonprofit, different segments of higher ed. And what they found is there was a segment of higher ed that basically had a student life cycle engagement problem, right? Mm -hmm. And every one of those, like getting them to apply, getting them to enroll, keeping them for the first year. So those are the folks they could drive the most value for. There's just huge dollars associated with the applications, the yield. Their growth literally from 10 to 50 companies was about 90% in this one segment of campuses, about 600 of them that had that life cycle problem. So they figured out where they could drive the most value and then just started to grow like crazy in that yep. segment. And then second was large community colleges that had a term-to-term re-enrollment problem. So
0: that was their next phase of growth. Got it. So to become better at tracking, um, and this is not so much a question focused for the uh investors on the call, this is more the entrepreneurs is what do you recommend entrepreneurs do to become better at tracking? Is there type of software platforms or maybe techniques you can really lean into? I think what we say is just be, and we eat our own dog food on
1: this, is think about if you're doing any kind of outbound, inbound campaigning, just do monthly commits or quarterly commits. I'm going after this persona with this message. Like literally build a library of this message to this segment and this mm. persona and just think about I mean, this, we do the work with clients, but you can do it on your own as well. It's like every month, how many meetings did I get and how many of those flow through to opportunities and closed opportunities and just do some simple tracking. I mean, you can do it in a BI tool, you can do it in an Excel sheet, but it really is just being more intentional about saying, where are we winning the fastest?
0: Got it. Yep. Got so it. It's okay. Like
1: I have a monthly commit. I'm going after these this campaign, uh,
0: and then I'm going to review quarterly, like where am I winning the quickest? Yep. Yeah, appreciate that. Thank you. Let's take a quick commercial break. <laughs> Do you feel like stock investing is too confusing, too time-consuming, too risky? It doesn't have to be. If you ever considered investing on your own but don't know where to start, Ticker is your solution. Ticker safely guides you through your investment journey by finding great stocks and showing you why those stocks are on sale, giving you the confidence that you're making a wise investment. I created Ticker because number one, I wanted to remove emotions from investing. In other words, I wanted a software to make buying and selling decisions for me so I don't have to. Number two, I wanted to save time. Analyzing stocks can take hours, if not days, and I didn't want to spend all day looking at a computer. I have other hobbies in life I'd rather be enjoying. I've been using Ticker the last five years to generate average returns ranging between 15% and 50% per year. Seeing that I was generating consistent high returns multiple years in a row motivated me to turn this software into a tool to share with others. If you're interested, you can get started with a free trial. Visit Ticker.com. That's T-Y. Kr.com. Again, ticker.com. What I'd like to do next is, and this has been really helpful for the meaning side of a business, understanding the business model, your customers, where it's going. Let's transition a little bit to the moat, which is the competition. Can you tell us a little bit about how you help the companies you work with? How do you help them become more aware of their competitors or, or become more aware of where they're going, so on and so forth?
1: Yeah, I mean, we often um, think about, uh, and this is where identifying your ideal buyer, you know, matters the most is thinking about each buyer in terms of what are the uh, range of alternatives they have, mm. including the right, the, you know, internal competition or doing nothing, right, which speaks to the intensity of the value prop. And so really, and this, you know, there's not a science to this is a little bit more of an art, but I think it's. Thinking about identifying those personas and then the segments where the number of alternatives yep. and the strength of those alternatives is less. Um, and where you can start to tell a story that you believe about unique value, which you can then hear from your customers.
0: Yep. Right. It's sort of lining up those things. I've seen this with the B 2 B2B world is. You have the obvious competitors, which are obviously other businesses like yours that could take your customer away from you. But then there's other competitors people don't think about, which is the um, selling upstream, getting stakeholder buy-in on something where making the change is actually more friction than just staying the status quo where we're at. So you got to sell against internal people as well. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts I, mean, you,
1: I think you know the answer to this, but you know the number one reason deals don't close? Why? People did nothing. Yes. You can't make a decision. No decision. Right. Yes. <laughs> so to your point, <laughs> to buy something new, particularly in a B2B world, you have to spend money to do something different. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's hard. Yes. That's hard. So uh, you're you're right that there is, you know, and as you go upstream, as you say, there's all kinds of folks that will say, well, I can do that. Right. Because they're protecting organizational turf or organizational budget. Um, so, yes, internal competition is for many companies our uh,
0: top competition. I figured. And I've run into that before working for larger institutions is trying to sell up the stream and, and you'll get some yeses, but then you get those no's. And those nose might have a larger title behind it, which makes it a very difficult boulder to move. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And it's, you, better, you better be well-armed in those conversations internally. And I think it's businesses that do, especially B2B, do a really good job as um, giving those salespeople the ammunition, the content, the context to really sell the story the whole way and get that close.
1: Mm-hmm. 100%. I wanted to go to your fourth one, management, yeah. yes. and I wanted to pick up on the mindset. This idea of, you know, the CEO's ego, because this is one of the things we say. You know, you can have a promising market, you can have a promising product, but one of the big dysfunctions we see in leadership teams in the sort of early growth mode before you're just kind of an item is the management mindset. Is people, um, you know, are just you'll, you'll sit in their management meetings and it's like I think. I think right. Everybody has Mm. a a point of view, I think. Yes. And just teaching them the discipline to say, I think because right, this is my evidence to support that assertion or making it comfortable to say, I don't know, but I will go find out. And here's how I will find out. Right. There are so many uh, leadership teams that are oriented for show. And not actually oriented for getting to product market fit and getting to go to market fit. And it sits with the CEO to just ask people when they're venturing their opinions about both external, you know, buyer positioning or execution or whatever it is, or internal collaboration, that they're supporting that with, you know, some kind of reasoning or evidence, honestly. Mm -hmm. It's like, how would we know that's true? Just asking that question. How would we know that's true? Or how would we test that? Right. And being open to saying, you know, I'm not I'm not sure, but here's how I would go. uh, Find out if that's true. You know, kind of checking your own ego at the door and saying, look, in this current very disrupted buyer environment, we all have to be active learners all the time.
0: Yeah. I love how you positioned that, because that's a really good sign for those of you who are investors and you like listening to the transcripts or watching videos on YouTube of CEOs is that moment when they admit outright, I am not the expert. I do not have the answer, but I will find I have a strategy, an action plan in place. They're not saying those words, but that's what they mean, is to find the right answer on a expedited timeline. They're not going to dwell on the next two years. It's like, let's get to an answer. So um, that's what I look for. And a good CEO is that humility to show that I am not, yeah, I'm not the expert here, but I'll find an answer for you. That's right. And as you said, it's not a defensive posture.
1: I don't know, silly me. It's a, (laughs) yes, that's an important question and it requires further investigation and this is Mm -hmm. what I'll do about it. You got to lead
0: on that further investigation. Right. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, Going back 10 years or so, I remember talking to—he uh, was one of these CEOs that he was like a contract CEO. He'd come in and, and for mid-sized manufacturing companies, maybe 500 employees or less. Maybe a, a father is uh, moving into retirement. He doesn't want to quite hand it off to the son or daughter, so he brings in this interim CEO for two, three years. And he told me a good CEO, and he practices this, can make decisions like really good decisions quickly with high conviction. And at the same time, you have the you have the understanding that, yes, you're going to make mistakes, but you can quickly correct and have an action plan to correct those from those mistakes, because there's a lot of people that want to move into that top level, but they don't make decisions and you've got to have the guts to make those decisions. So knowing that you worked with a lot of CEOs, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, no, I think what that's exactly right is setting a direction quickly but recognizing ambiguity and that we might have to make adjustments. What, you know, kills morale and slows things down is hanging ambiguity. Yes. And so, yeah, I think you're right that the best CEOs make decisions. They leave some ambiguity because, you know, business is ambiguous. But this is, I actually had a a CEO, Tom Drettler at EduVentures, who now leads a company called Shorelight, and he would say, Everything is the same until it's not, right? But this is what we're executing now. Let's execute it well. Yep. And then it, as a leadership team, if we're going to adjust, we'll adjust. So recognizing both of those. And it's, uh, it's a hard balance, but it's exactly the right
0: balance. Right. No, I, I loved your comments there. Um, there are also CEOs that are are good fits for different size organizations. You've got your mm. startup CEOs that can get you from zero to one, you know, from from nothing to a product market fit. Then the mid size scale, and then maybe that high end growth going from ten million in revenue to hundred million. I know you could break this out in different segments, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the the different mindsets for the different type of CEOs based on the size of the organization.
1: Yeah, you know, I think you're you're right. The sort of the the first one is somebody who can dive in and do the work mm-hmm. with their team, right? The second one, to me, is probably the where you need to be. This most fluid in making between one and ten million, fluid in making a lot of decisions and agile. And that's where, honestly, most companies stall because they don't have the right leadership. I mean, once you're above ten million in a software company, you're gonna have forty or fifty people in a services company. More. and now, honestly, uh, communication and talent development are by far the two most mm. important skills, right? You just have to get good at communicating the same thing to yeah. different constituencies over and over and over again. And as you level up, you got to get better and better at recruiting talent for different roles for different size of companies. Right. Um, so that's where, I mean, you know, really good CEOs are not really that different from politicians. Right? <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're very good. And and Tom Drettler, who is a good friend. I mean, he was so good at telling his story, you know, you could just see the, the story was crisp and it was authentic, yep. but he knew his audience and he knew the points of the story to tell. So that communication and incredibly good at recruiting talent because he would get people excited and about the vision, and had just had a good sense for people and how
0: their talents could fit into different roles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That The question from my perspective was somewhat selfish because this is a learning moment for me <laughs> as I help build Ticker and, and have a really awesome team around me. But that's one thing I've been paying close attention to is building a really solid team, recruiting the right people, and then um, reiterating the vision. Where are we going? What do we want to do? And it shouldn't become like daunting. It should—it's repetitive, but it's—it should be fun. But it's a necessity. You can't just say it once, walk away. Which, unfortunately, you see that in a lot of organizations. You got to keep communicating, keep driving. This is what we're doing. This is, everybody's got to be aligned on this goal. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. I think your your instinct is dead on. It's because it's uh, particularly in earlier growth companies, a lot of the reason people are there is for the vision. Mm. And when the vision dies, I mean, you know, they when they don't feel energized by it anymore, they're going to go get a job in a big company, right? Big secure company. So articulating, yes. and re- articulating and rearticulating the vision, and honestly, recruiting for vision alignment is really important. Uh, I would say through
0: ten million dollars. Sure. Yeah. This has been really helpful. And, and thank you for taking your business model, and what you do, and really applying it to the retail investors vision here as they look at businesses. Um, before we jump into the rapid fire round, which is a fun round of questions we'll get to in a second. Um, is there a question that I did not ask that I should have asked?
1: Uh, no, we covered a lot of great ground, Sean. Okay, all right. Really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Yeah. Likewise. Well. Well. Let's dive in. We call this rapid fire round. This is the part of the episode where we get to find out who Brent really is. <laughs> if you, <laughs> that's dangerous. I know. I know. Um, if you can try to answer each question in fifteen seconds or less. If you go a little over, that that's okay. But um, the first question is: What is a favorite podcast you listen to?
1: Um, you know, Jay Webbs over quota. He's been a long term friend, and he gets a really diverse set of um, talent.
0: Nice. Nice. What is a recent book you read and would recommend?
1: Um, Most of the books I read are, are from a Christian point of view. So I don't know that I would recommend it to your audience. People
0: wouldn't necessarily relate to it. Uh, Well, we, we have a lot of Christians in the audience. Rick Rick
1: Warren's I've just gone back and reread the purpose
0: driven life. Okay. Very anchoring, recentering. Nice. Nice. Put it on the list. What is the uh, best business advice you ever received?
1: Uh, make it all about the people, both your buyers and your team.
0: Right on. We're going to flip the equation here. What is the worst business advice you ever received?
1: <laughs> um, worst business advice I ever received was just keep going. Just keep going. <laughs> return for your investors, even if there was no evidence that there was a, a right. successful outcome there. <laughs>
0: Right. You got to be wise enough to know when to stop, make a pivot, make some changes. You know, hundred percent. Last question here is the time machine question. So if you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit and what would you say?
1: Oh, man. Um, I think I would probably go back to being about 27 or 30 and I would just say life is a journey. Don't be in such a hurry, young man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Things will work out the way they're meant to work out. Yes. Yes. Right on. Great advice. Well, I'll turn it over to you. Where can the audience reach you? Yeah. So
1: um, if they want to go to the website, Authenticity Wins, it will actually bring you to our book website. Great way to get to know us is read our book that's just come out, the Revenue Acceleration Playbook. That will also land you on Uh and they can email me directly at bkeltner at winolytics.com, which is
0: W-I-N-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Brent. This was awesome.
1: And Sean, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me today. All
0: right. We'll see you. <laughs> hey i just want to say thanks for checking out this podcast i know your time is valuable and there's a lot of other podcasts out there you could be listening to so thanks for taking the time to listen to my guest's story if you did enjoy this podcast episode could you head over to itunes and leave a five-star review that would be much appreciated thank you and last but not least on this podcast uh, some episodes we do talk about stocks and please keep in mind this podcast is for entertainment purposes only So if you did hear any buy or sell recommendations, please don't make those decisions based solely on what you hear. All right, thanks a lot, see ya.